Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, an inspirational and informative half hour of insight into the heart of Scripture. In addition to teaching the Bible, Les is a full-time rancher, having a down-to-earth practical teaching style that makes the Bible come to life. All programs are available on audio tape, videotape, and in printed form. At the end of the program, there will be an address where you can contact the ministry. And now, here's Les Feldick with today's lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and now we're going to 3. I won't even take time to mention the tapes and books in this program. And uh, we know that a lot of the things that God mandated for Israel, for example, was because of their, their national customs and the way God had taught them. And so uh, we're going to take these uh, coming verses with a little bit of a grain of salt. I'm not going to take it as no longer being the Word of God, not at all. But I do want us to realize that there has been a tremendous change in the, uh, what shall I say, the position and the attitude of men toward women in Christianity. Now, maybe just for openers, before we even get started, I, I found a couple quotes the other night as I was looking at some of these things. You want to realize that Paul himself was not anti-woman. Paul in Romans 16 commends so many women who helped him in the ministry. And uh, he certainly recognized the fact that there was a role for women in the church. Now, in this portion in Corinthians, when it sounds as though he's coming down kind of hard on the women, again, remember the circumstances in Corinth, the pagan city that it was, and still probably closer to the Orient than it was to what we would call Western civilization. And so many of the things that uh, was part and parcel of the Hebrew as well as the pagan attitude toward women is probably epitomized in these two little quotes. Sophocles, a Greek philosopher back even before Paul's time, said it like this, silence confers grace upon a woman. You hear what he's saying? The best thing a woman can do is be quiet. Now, that was the philosophers of Greece, see? Now, I'm not saying this to promote this. I'm just saying that this is the attitude that was prevalent when Paul was dealing with these early Christian people. Now, out of the Talmud, the book of Jewish writings, and actually the Talmud was really a commentary, all right, this comes out of the Talmud, and it lists several plagues that could be uh, laid upon the Jewish people. And of the several plagues, here was one of them. Now, you're not going to like this, but I'm not promoting this. I'm just trying to show you that this was the attitude prevalent when Paul is writing. This is in the Talmud. The talkative widow and the virgin who wastes her time in prayers are one of the plagues of Israel. Shall I read it again? 
a plague of Israel was a talkative widow or a virgin who wastes her time in prayer. Now, we would never dream of saying something like that today. But this was the attitude. Now, this, of course, backs up what I have taught for years and years and years, and I've made no apology for it. Don't ever accuse the Apostle Paul of being anti-feminist. It's the Apostle Paul's doctrine who opened up the world of freedom to the woman. Really, Christianity is what set womanhood free. And you just stop and think about it. Now, as we come into these uh, coming verses, keep in mind that even today in the Middle East, an unveiled woman is open to anything. She can be open to verbal abuse. She's open to snide remarks as she walks down the street. She may be even open to various types of attack. But if she is veiled, if she is veiled, she now retreats into a world all her own. And even the, the, the brassest of men in the Middle East will recognize that that veiled woman is not to be touched. And so we have to take these cultures into view as we now see what Paul's writing here. And so with the culture in view, what he's telling these Corinthian believers is, be careful. Since this is the way the world around you looks at this situation, be careful how you handle it, lest they misinterpret. Now, we're in the same situation in many areas of the things today. We have to be careful how we do certain things, lest the unbelieving world totally misinterpret our actions and they totally accuse us wrongly. All right, now maybe as we come into the text, you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now we still, except for the younger generation, we still adhere to that. Those of us who grew up in a generation back, boy, I'll tell you what, you wore your cap into my high school back when I was a kid, and you were in the principal's office just for wearing your cap in the schoolhouse. Well, that was discipline. And the same way, I think even today, very, very few men would walk into a church sanctuary with their hat on, right? I mean, we just don't do those things. Well, you see, back here, it again goes back to custom. And so Paul says, hey, it's just common knowledge that a man does not come into an attitude of prayer or worship with his hat on. He removes it. All right, verse 5. For the woman, it's the other way around. You don't expect a woman to go into any kind of a worship situation without her head covered. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth, verse 5, with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. All right, now, does that mean that women today have to wear a veil or a hat or something on their head when they go in church? No, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. But in the culture of that day, for a woman to be out in public with nothing over her head when they were used to the veil, what woman or what kind of woman would usually flaunt herself in that way? Well, the prostitutes, see? The prostitutes would just uh, flaunt themselves by removing these coverings from their head, in other words, to unveil their profession. All right, now, naturally... 
if that is the mindset out of 99.9% of the population, you see what an impact that makes? And so Paul is dealing with it under those circumstances. Now, today, we're not bothered with that. And so this is why I think uh, custom has completely changed our interpretation of some of these things. But we're going to look at it because it's still part and parcel of the Word of God. All right. So verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn or shaved. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shaved or shaven, then let her be covered. Well, that's sensible, isn't it? If, if a woman realizes that it's certainly not becoming to have her hair all shaved off, and again making her right down at the same level with the prostitutes, what woman is going to do that? Of course not. Common sense. All right, verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God. And again, that goes back to Adam. That as Adam was created in the image of God, and also then as Adam was the first created, the woman was created next. And that's what he says in so many words then in verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. That was the process in creation. And you remember how I stressed it, that when God created Adam, Eve was in him. Eve was in Adam at creation. And then it was out of Adam that he created the woman later. Now, you see, this is why God has maintained all the way up through human history that that is the way he ordained it, that the husband was to be the head of the woman, not as a slave master, but in the order of God's things, this is the way he has ordained it by virtue of his creating the man and then the woman. All right. Now I'm going to skip a couple of these verses, then come on down to verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man, in the Lord, for as the woman is of the man, so is the man also by woman. But all things are what? They're of God. Now, let's go back to Genesis. Maybe this will help a little bit. Come back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and uh, let's come all the way down to verse 18. Genesis 1 again, verse 18. Boy, it's been a long time since we've taught Genesis. Now, fortunately for technology, we can use our Genesis tapes. And uh, one of these days when everybody's catching up with us as far as... see, I hope television people realize when they burn up six of these programs a week, and some stations are, we're on Sunday all the way through Friday, uh, day is coming when they're going to catch up because we're only producing four a month. So anyway, I'm going to warn them right here and now that when they finally catch up to where we are in Corinthians, we're going to have those stations just go back to Genesis 1-1 and just start all over again. And uh, the Lord tarries until they catch up and we've still got money to stay on the air. We'll repeat it again because uh, I've taught some of these people in Oklahoma as much as seven and eight times from Genesis to Revelation. So I think television can handle it as well. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good, see, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet or a complement is a better word. 
I will make a compliment for him. Now then we know that God had already created the animal kingdom, and then you come down to verse 19, he's going to have Adam name them. And so all the created creatures come around past Adam, and he puts a name on them. Verse 20. I'm, did I say one? I'm sorry. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Forgive me. Like I always say, that's what keeps a guy humble. Boy, I goof every once in a while. All right, chapter 2, verse 18. And God, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. And then verse 19, out of the ground he formed every beast, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And Adam named them, verse 20. But, the last half of verse 20, here is an important statement. But, for Adam there was not found a helpmate or a mate for him. I remember when I taught this back in Genesis, I said, can't you just about imagine that Adam was seeing all these creatures come by him to be named, and they all had their mate, no doubt, the male and the female. And probably after ever so long a time, Adam just almost got a lonely feeling and said, now, Lord, why? Why do all these creatures have a mate and I'm alone? Well, God had already said it's not good for man to be alone, so he wasn't shocked by that response. And so now then, we come down to verse 21. After all this time, we know how long it took for Adam to name everything. But this isn't a matter of minutes, but however long it was, Adam was alone. And now God says, I'll cause a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and I prefer to use the term side chamber, which is also the same definition for that uh, Hebrew word. And he took a side chamber and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And from this side chamber, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. Now, there was the process of Eve coming on to the scene. Now, I always like to turn to Genesis chapter 5 to show that this is exactly how it happened, that Adam was created and was alone for a certain period of time, but that Eve was already inside to a certain degree because she had to be in order to keep Adam as the head, the federal head of the human race when it came to salvation. All right, Genesis 5, verse 2, male and female, he created them and blessed them, and he called, what's the next word? There, see? He called their name, not Adam and Eve, but he called their name what? Adam. So what does that tell you? Eve was in Adam. And she was part and parcel of him, even as God created him and named him Adam. But she was in there, and so she was also. Now, you want to remember, she wasn't even called Eve until after the fall. And that, of course, was when uh, she became Eve instead of just simply be referred to as woman. But anyhow, there was the process of creation. God created man, Adam, with Eve within him. And then sometime later, he takes that part of Eve out of Adam and creates the woman. And so now he has his complement. He is now complete. He is no longer alone. All right, so now this is what Paul... Come back to 1 Corinthians 11 again. So this is what Paul is resting on. 
that the whole order of the sexes is not some modern phenomena. This originated at creation. God created the man to be the head of the woman because she was created next, and that was God's ordained way of setting up the home and the family, and it holds to this day because God never rescinded it. Oh, maybe some of our moderns think they can, but God has never rescinded his format for the home, and that is the husband who is the head of the wife and then, of course, a family of children. Now, I always have to emphasize that does not make the man a slave master. His wife is not a gopher for him. She is a helpmate. She is a complement. And uh, men are to understand that. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 again. Verse 12. We just read it, but read it again. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. In other words, they have come together in a union now that puts them almost on an equal basis, but the man is still the head of the union. All right? And then the man, of course, came from God in creation. All right. Now verse 13. So he says, judge or discern. Make up your own mind. Is it comely, or is it right, is it right that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? Now again, that goes back, I think, to the custom of Rome, and I think the men of those days wore rather short-cropped hair. Now verse 15, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. It's a blessing. And I think any woman will be ad first to admit that. That to have a beautiful head of hair is indeed a blessing. All right, now then, verse 16. See, Paul is, is tempering all this. He, he's not just coming in with a sledgehammer blow, but he is constantly tempering these Corinthians because he doesn't want them to feel... What's the word I'm trying to find? He doesn't want them to feel browbeaten. He doesn't want them to return their feelings in a rebellion. And yet he's got to make some corrections. Things have to be straightened up. And the word he's going to use in chapter 14 is that everything done in the local church must be done in what? In order. See? Not in a mass of confusion, but everything in order. This is the way God does things. He is a God of order. And even in Israel, my, when the children of Israel hoisted camp and they picked up and got ready to move, did the whole several million just go like a mob? No, sir, boy. I mean, they moved out like an organized army. All the tribes in their rightful order. And it wasn't just a, a hobnob of masses of people. It was an orderly procession. He's a God of order. And the same way in, in the temple worship. There were prescribed ways to do everything. He's a God of order. In the same way when Paul teaches the resurrections in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be coming to that in another month or two, I guess. And what does he say? Every man in his own order. See? Even the resurrections aren't going to be just a great big jumbled up affair. 
but every man in his own particular order, it's going to be an orderly resurrection. All right? So now then, verse 16. So he says, if any man seem to be contentious, in other words, he's always causing problems. He's always differing. He says, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, again, I think he is, it is tempering the attitude of these people concerning the haircuts of the prostitutes compared to the haircuts of the Roman citizenry. And he's bringing all this in and says, just don't do anything that makes the outside world think that you believers here in the church are a bunch of kooks. Now, that's the best way I can put it. Don't let the world think of your church service as just something like a bunch of nuts or you're somebody that's out there in left field. Because they're watching. Absolutely they're watching. And so he says, you have to be careful. All right, now in the few moments we have left, let's go into verse 6 to 17. Now he's coming back to the Lord's table. You see what I told you several programs ago? God, uh, Paul's shifting gears. He'll be coming along, and all of a sudden he just sort of shifts down into a lower gear, and he comes back over to something for all. Now we're going to shift back up into a higher gear, and we're going to get back to the instructions concerning the Lord's table. And the Corinthians had a problem with the Lord's table, of all things. Boy, did they. Did they. I mean, they had big problems, more than any church could imagine today. All right, let's look at it in the few moments we have. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. What's the other way of saying that? Hey, I'm finding fault with you. You've got a problem, Corinthians. And that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now listen, what is it saying? He said, the way you're doing things for you to come into the local church is doing you more harm than good. You are totally mixing up the things that I have delivered unto you. You're doing it all wrong. All right, verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church... Now, remember what the church is. It's, it's a home. We're just a small group of people. Not in some great big edifice, but in somebody's living room or maybe out in their patio. He says, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. Well, we've already covered that back in chapter 1. And what were the divisions? Oh, some said, I follow Jesus. Some said, well, not me. I go by what Peter says. And then there were those, no, Paul is the guy who brought us out of all our darkness. I'm going to stick with Paul. And then along came this smooth, highly polished intellectual order. Who was that? Apollos. And so some of them said, well, I follow Apollos. So there were four distinct divisions in this little church. Unbelievable. And so Paul says, and I believe it. Now remember, he's getting all this by hearsay. Verse 19. For there must be also heresies. See, even false teachings were slipping in. For there must be also heresies among you, that they who are proved may be made manifest among you. Now, here it comes. We're going to deal with the Lord's Supper. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this, or your coming together, is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating 
everyone taketh other of his own supper. One is hungry, and is another drunken. Now, wait a minute. The Lord's Supper in every denomination I've ever visited is nothing more than a piece of unleavened bread of some sort and a little cup of grape juice or wine. Now, that's not enough to satisfy physical hunger or to get drunk on, right? So what was going on? Hey, they were having a great big potluck supper before they had the Lord's Supper. See, that's what we call it now. The big city churches, I don't know where they do it anymore now, but I know most of the smaller rural churches still like to have your potluck suppers where people just bring in whatever they feel qualified to bring and then put it on the table and everybody is. All right, the Corinthians were doing that ahead of the Lord's table for an evening service. Now, I think the reason it's called supper because the, the ancients more or less practiced, I think like most of rural America does, that the farmer, when he gets up in the morning, he wants a big breakfast. He probably won't eat all that much at noon, but then in the evening, and I think even our city people, evening is the big meal. Well, it's the same way back here. And so these Corinthians were used to their main meal being in the evening. And so before they practiced the Lord's table, they would come in with a potluck supper. Thank you for joining us again for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. If you'd like to order audio tapes, videos, or any of our printed material, you may do so by writing Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. That's Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. Or you can call us toll-free if you'd like at one 800 369 7856. That's 1-800-369-7856. Remember, this is a faith ministry, and your participation with us is greatly appreciated. Again, our address is Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. And our phone is 1-800-369-7856. Thanks again for listening, and please join us next time for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.